Our passage for this morning is Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28. If you would, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Again, that's Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Have you ever been a, a part of a club? There are a lot of different types of clubs out there. There are social clubs and art clubs and sports clubs. There are car clubs and gun clubs. There are business and ag clubs. There are political clubs. There are clubs out there for really any sort of hobby or skill or interest uh, that you could possibly be interested in. And and this is great on one hand because it can allow you to spend time and and socialize with people who share your interests. That's really the, the purpose of a club. Club exists. Clubs exist so that people with common interests, common goals can gather together and, and discuss and pursue their interests together. And it's for this reason that some clubs are remarkably exclusive. Again, clubs exist to pull people with common goals or interests together, and so some clubs exist to pull together the elites in their field uh, who are looking to, to socialize with other elites who can pursue their common interests at an equally high level. The way that these clubs do this, they pull this off, is by ma- this idea of matching elites with elites, is by shutting down those who don't qualify as elite. They create this rigorous set of acceptance standards, and then if a person does not measure up to these standards, then they're refused membership in the club. This keeps the average person out, and it allows the elites to gather and network with those who are pursuing their common goal at the same level. For example, you may have heard of Mensa before. Mensa International is a club for intellectuals. It isn't interested or isn't necessarily intended or interested in, in being a political or religious organization or, or anything like that. Its sole purpose is to bring together highly intelligent people so that they can pursue social or cultural activities with other people of challenging intellect. Or at least that's supposed to be the purpose of the organization. I don't know if you're familiar with Mensa or not. If you are, you may question whether or not that's what it really does. But that's the goal. That's what it's supposed to do. It's a club for intellectually gifted individuals. And for this reason, the sole standard for membership in this group is IQ level. It doesn't matter what age you are, what your beliefs are, how much you make. Uh, It doesn't even really depend on your education level. You just have to be smart. According to their website... They have had members as young as two and as old as a hundred. Because again, the only purpose of the club is to gather intelligent people together. So the only standard for membership is IQ. But because that is the only standard, and because the purpose of that group is to gather intelligent people together, the standard is set pretty high. To be a part of Mensa, you have to have an IQ score within the top 2% of the population. That would mean that you would have to score above 130 on most standard IQ tests. A 29 on the ACT would qualify, so would a score of around 1250 on the SAT. Again, that's a fairly rigorous standard. But depending on the type of club, standards can be even more exclusive than that. After all, 2% of the world's population still equates to about 150 million people. Mensa sounds exclusive, but it's really not that exclusive. Statistically, I mean, one in every 50 people qualify. Consider what kind of standards you would have to meet if you want to be a part of a professional baseball club. 
Major League Baseball teams are technically called clubs because uh, that's what they are. That's what they originated at, as, as baseball clubs. So say you wanted to be a part of the Kansas City Royals Baseball Club. There are 1,200 active Major League Baseball players at any given time. So in order to make the Kansas City Royals, you'd have to be among the top 1,200 baseball players in the world. Now, it's hard to know how many baseball players there are out there, but if you run the numbers just according to the populations of major, major baseball-playing countries, which includes more than just the U.S., then about 1 in 500,000 people from those countries play professional baseball. Needless to say, Major League Baseball clubs are incredibly exclusive. Only about 1,200 baseball players in the world are good enough to qualify for one of those clubs at any given time. And some social clubs are are nearly as exclusive as that. For example, if you were to join this uh, club called CORE in New York, which is a club where men like former Yahoo CEO Jerry Yang and fashion designer Kenneth Cole hang out, then it's going to cost you $15,000 per year in addition to the $50,000 initial membership fee. And that's even if they accept you. I mean, besides the membership fees, they keep their membership requirements pretty secretive. So there's only around 1,500 members at this time. And yet, as rigorous as membership in these clubs can be, there is another kind of fellowship that is perhaps not quite as exclusive, but will connect you with far more powerful people and possesses exceedingly greater membership standards. And I'm talking, of course, about the kingdom of heaven. This society is populated by the likes of God the Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, as well as the Holy Spirit. These are persons far more powerful than any CEO or politician. They are wealthier than any hedge fund manager or professional athlete, and they are more intelligent than any artist or PhD. After all, they are God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And of course, just as with any of these exclusive clubs, there are tremendous benefits that come with being in fellowship with persons as powerful as these three, but the problem is the membership qualification. You see, these three are perfectly holy, and on one hand, this means that they are incredibly exclusive, utterly unique. In fact, the qualifications for being a part of their inner fellowship, their very inner fellowship, is deity. And this means that ultimately, while there are three members of this club, the membership is still only one. It's a club of one. Only one being qualifies for that fellowship, and that's God, who exists as one God in three persons. That's part of what it means for God to be holy. It means that He is unique, He is set apart, He is different. But holy can also mean righteous. And these three are perfectly holy in that regard as well. They are exceedingly righteous. They are perfectly righteous. They are committed to holiness and they are very good at it. In fact, in them there is absolutely no unholiness, no unrighteousness. They are completely without sin. And that's what they're committed to. And so that's the standard that they have decided to use to determine membership in this extended fellowship, the kingdom of heaven. Membership in the kingdom of heaven is not determined by a person's wealth, or power, or nobility, or intellect. It's determined by righteousness. And the requirement for this standard is absolute perfection. Again, God loves 
righteousness. He demands righteousness. He loves it so much that he's actually angered by any and all unrighteousness. And so to be in fellowship with him, one must be completely and utterly righteous. That's a problem. Because only one person has ever met this qualification. There used to be two people who met it, Adam and Eve, when they were first created. They were created good, and they enjoyed fellowship in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. They didn't possess any sin. They were righteous in God's eyes. But then Adam sinned. And through his sin, sin and death spread to all mankind. And now all are born into the world as sinners. In the words of Psalm 14, there is none who does good, not even one. We are all unrighteous. Save for one man, and that's God the Son, come in human flesh, Jesus Christ. He is the only person who has ever met God's perfect standard for righteousness. And this is because, again, he is a member of the triune Godhead. He possesses an incorruptible love for righteousness, and so he never once sinned. He alone is righteous. And so He alone is worthy of the kingdom of heaven. Everyone else is a sinner. As we saw in last week's passage, there is sin bubbling up from our hearts. And this sin defiles us, and it makes us unworthy of the presence of God. This means that the entrance requirement for the kingdom of heaven is far, far more rigorous than the standard set by any earthly club or institution. The requirement is perfect righteousness, and only one person, only one, has ever met that requirement. So the question is, how is a person like us going to be able to join this fellowship? How is a sinner like you or I going to be accepted into the kingdom of heaven. The qualification, again, is perfect righteousness. We don't meet that. So how are you or me or anyone else except Jesus, except Him, how how are the rest of us going to get in? That's the question that we're going to see answered in our passage this morning, which is Matthew 15, 21 to 28. In this passage, the least likely of all candidates, comes to Jesus, seeking the blessing of the kingdom. Externally, this person is really the least qualified of anyone for the kingdom of heaven. But by the end of this story, she gets it. She's in, so to speak. She's accepted. How'd she do it? How does this work? Let's read the passage together and find out. The passage, once again, is Matthew 15, 21 to 28. And Matthew says this. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, 
O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This passage begins with Jesus withdrawing with his disciples into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, We've already seen Jesus withdraw on a couple uh, of occasions earlier in Matthew. Back in chapter 12, for instance, the Pharisees conspired to destroy Jesus after he healed a man with a withered hand on Sabbath, and then Jesus withdrew. In chapter 14, Jesus withdraws after he hears that Herod thinks that he is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And he'll do it again at the end of our passage next week. Uh, The Pharisees and scribes will come to him requesting a sign from heaven. And after Jesus rebukes them, he's going to leave and depart. Here in our passage, Jesus does it again. He takes his disciples and he withdraws into the region of Tyre and Sidon, which was a Gentile region about 25 miles north of Galilee. And from context, it would appear that Jesus makes this withdrawal for a few reasons, but but the primary reason really, it would seem, is rest. If you recall back in chapter 14, we saw that the reason why Jesus withdrew from the region of Herod Antipas, after he hears that Herod thinks he's the resurrected form of John the Baptist, was not because of fear or anything like that. Rather, it was because Jesus wanted to give his disciples rest. The disciples had just come off of this incredibly fast-paced and extensive mission in the region of Galilee. And as they're coming back, Jesus gets this news about Herod. And he realizes that the pace of his ministry is about to pick up. The road to Jerusalem is already becoming very imminent. Meaning that the next year of Jesus' ministry is going to be incredibly hectic as he and his disciples will be almost constantly on the move from one place to another under the threat of constant persecution. It's going to be not only physically, but an emotionally exhausting period of time for Jesus' disciples. And this period of hostility is touched off with this news that Herod has heard that about Jesus, and he's made the connection between Jesus and John the Baptist, whom he had put to death. So Jesus hears this news, and according to Mark, he told his disciples, come away with yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. That's why Jesus withdrew, to give his disciples rest in preparation for this incredibly rigorous journey in front of them. The problem, however, was that as soon as Jesus came into this desolate region, away from Herod Antipas, there was this crowd already waiting for them with the sick that they had brought to Jesus to heal there along the shoreline. And after Jesus healed all the people in that place and crossed over with his disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the same thing happened again in that region where the people of Gennesaret heard that he was there. In other words, the disciples' Galilean mission had been incredibly successful. News had gotten out about Jesus. His fame had spread. And so now people were coming from all around to see him. And this made rest in Galilee or even in many of the regions nearby Galilee Impossible. The disciples are therefore still in need of the rest that Jesus intended to give them when he first heard about Herod, but it's apparent that this can't be found in Galilee. So Jesus instead takes his disciples into this extremely Gentile region, 25 miles north of Galilee, to escape the crowds and give his disciples this much-needed rest. In other words, and this is very important to understanding this passage, 
the purpose of this withdrawal is not mission. Matthew even helps draw this point out by saying that Jesus came, look, he didn't say they came to Tyre and Sidon. He says they came to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus is coming out to this region dominated by these two cities, but he's not traveling in those population centers. He's in the countryside. And the reason it would seem is because Jesus isn't coming into these regions to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. He's coming to give his disciples rest. Now, there are probably a couple of other reasons for this withdrawal as well. Training, for instance, would be one major reason for this withdrawal. Again, Jesus' death is already imminent. In just a few months, he will be hanging on a cross just outside of Jerusalem. And in accounts like this one that we'll see unfold today, Jesus will begin to prepare his disciples for life after his death and resurrection. So that was, is probably one of the reasons for this withdrawal as well. Rejection would be another reason. In our last passage, Jesus uh, just had another confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees. And towards the end of that encounter, Jesus told the disciples, and I quote, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. He just declares this scathing indictment against Israel's religious leaders, where where he continues to express that he has turned his back on them for their rejection of his message And that sentiment is then expressed here with Jesus' literal physical withdrawal from Galilee into this Gentile region 25 miles north. That would be another reason for this withdrawal. But the primary reason, the main reason, it would seem, is rest. Jesus is traveling along the Phoenician countryside away from the crowds in order to prepare his disciples for the whirlwind of events that will unfold over the next several months as Jesus makes his final sprint to the cross. However, just as in Galilee, these plans are quickly interrupted. But this time, it's not the same crowds that greeted Jesus and his disciples back in Galilee. This isn't a mass of people that are there interrupting Jesus' plans. This time, it's a single, solitary woman. Verse 22, Matthew says, And behold, that means pay attention, or or probably even better yet, can you believe it? Jesus went away from Galilee into this region of Tyre Sidon to get away from the crowds and find rest. And can you believe it? A Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. This is an incredibly remarkable event. And really on a couple of different levels. First, this is a Canaanite woman. This is a Canaanite woman, and she's calling out son of David. That's remarkable. The Canaanites, you will recall, were the sworn enemies of Israel. Like when Israel came into the land, God told them to kill every Canaanite that they encountered. And if you think I'm exaggerating on that, I'm not. Moses said this in Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 to 18. And again, I quote, he says, In the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites 
and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. The Canaanites were considered so evil, so unrighteous, that they were actually considered a threat to Israel's holiness. I mean, you want to talk about defiled, right? These guys were it. And they threatened to spread their defilement by tempting Israel's wicked hearts to join them in their idolatrous debauchery. And so God said, when you get into the land, wipe them all out. Every single one. And yet here is this Canaanite woman. And she's recognizing God's Messiah. She's calling Jesus the Son of David. She's expressing faith in the God of Israel, even recognizing Jesus' Messianic identity when so much of Israel refused to accept it. And she's doing it in light of so much less evidence. That's remarkable. That she, a Canaanite, is affirming God's Messiah. That's remarkable. But even more than this, he's actually calling out to this Messiah for mercy. She's not just recognizing who she is. She's asking that he show her mercy. That's remarkable. Do you understand? Like David killed Canaanites. The Jebusites, for instance, lived in Jerusalem back before it was called Jerusalem, when it was actually called Jebus. But David conquered that city and made it his capital. Again, David killed People like this. And this woman is crying out, Son of David, have mercy. That's remarkable. For this woman, not only to recognize that Jesus is the greater David, but to also expect that in spite of this, He would help her. That's remarkable. This woman is really the most unlikely of all people to be seeking help from Jesus. She's a Canaanite. And by the way, Canaanite at this point in time was no longer an ethnic term. That was not a term that people used when Matthew wrote this gospel. So he's really going out of his way to highlight this point. This woman is a Canaanite. And not only that, she's a woman. And and women, as you know, in this time were regarded as second-class citizens. Rabbis typically didn't spend their time talking with women. Meaning that, according to her society, she isn't just a Canaanite but a second-class Canaanite at that. She would have been, in the eyes of the average Jew, the very lowest of the low, the very last person to ever expect that she could have any portion whatsoever in God's Messianic kingdom. And if you're wondering why it appears she's keeping her distance here in this story, calling out from Jesus from a distance and then rushing up to his feet later, if you're wondering why she's doing this, keeping her distance, this is probably why. She knows who she is. She knows that she is unclean in Jewish eyes. And so out of respect to this Davidic king, she is keeping her distance. She's not going to bring her defilement into his presence. And yet she's still crying out, Son of David, have mercy. As if she has any reason to hope that he might show her some measure of compassion. That's remarkable. But even in addition to that, this event is remarkable remarkable because even when the disciples get into the one place, the one place, where would it seem like they could find rest? In Tyre and Sidon, which was this region that was denounced as an especially godless place in the Old Testament. 
even then there is at least one person who won't let them find this rest. Jesus' fame has spread so far that even here, in the very last of all places where they should expect to find anyone who would express any interest in Jesus, even here there is this one Canaanite woman who is yet coming to Jesus, desperate for his help. I mean, can you picture it? Here are the disciples, eager to finally get away from the crowds and enjoy a few moments of peace and quiet after strenuously exerting themselves over this extended period of ministry. They think that they're finally away from it all. They finally are going to have a few moments of peace and quiet. But then there's this one woman, this one solitary woman who has apparently heard of Jesus' ministry, even as far away as Tyre and Sidon, and she comes out into the countryside. She looks for them, and she finds Jesus and His disciples, and she's crying out, Son of David, Son of David, Please come and heal my daughter. And the word for crying here in the Greek is in the imperfect, which means that she was doing this over an extended period of time. She's just doing this over and over again. If you can kind of picture it like a movie in your head and then, and then sort of pan out to the wide angle of this shot, you can see this small huddle of men just kind of quietly walking along the countryside. Maybe they're even just sitting and resting somewhere. And it's calm, it's peaceful, it's still save for this one, one woman who's breaking the still air with her pleas for mercy, yelling out from a, a, a safe distance, Son of David, Son of David, please come and heal my daughter. Please, please have mercy on me, Son of David. I need your help. I mean, you can get a sense of the desperation of this request. And when you get a sense of the desperation of this request, it's hard to say that this is, a, this is comical or something like that, but I think you maybe get a sense of how frustrating this would be for the disciples. Again, they're wanting rest. They're tired. But there's this one relentless woman whose desperation is preventing them from finding that rest. I mean, it's not funny, but it is frustrating. At a very sincere level, this would have been seriously annoying for Jesus' disciples. And then to top it off, verse 23, Jesus isn't saying a word. This woman's just going on and on, son of David, son of David, son of David, over and over again. The disciples are annoyed. And, and you can imagine they're looking at Jesus and Jesus isn't doing anything. He isn't saying anything. He isn't acknowledging her in any way. He's just plain ignoring her. And the disciples apparently let this go on for a little bit, but finally, enough is enough. In verse 23, they come to Jesus and they beg Him, send her away, for she is crying out after us. They say to Him, please, Jesus, won't you do something about this? And to be clear, they're not asking Him just to tell her to leave. After all, by this point, it's obvious that this woman isn't going to go away until she gets what she asks for. No, they're essentially asking Jesus to help her. The only way this determined woman is going to leave is if Jesus gives her what she wants. And, and so they're essentially asking Jesus, look, Jesus, please, could you just heal her daughter and be done with it so we can get some peace and quiet here? And this raises a problem. It raises a, a theological problem that the disciples either weren't aware of or that they didn't care about when they make this request. And the problem is this. 
how is she, a Canaanite, going to participate in the blessings of God's kingdom? That's what this request is about here, this asking for him to heal her. And that's a problem. Again, this is a Gentile, meaning that this woman is outside of the promises of God. The kingdom was promised to Israel, not to unclean Gentiles, and certainly not to a Canaanite at that. According to traditional Jewish theology, this woman is unclean. She's defiled. More than this, she's a sworn enemy of God. So how can she have any fellowship with God and His blessing? And Jesus, He's the Davidic King. He was sent to redeem Israel and establish God's kingdom. He was sent to judge the earth. By what basis would he ever show any mercy or compassion to her? Now, to be clear, I think it's fair to say that Jesus already knows the answers to these questions. He knows how to resolve this theological dilemma, but the disciples don't. I mean, after all, Jesus actually, remember here, Jesus actually told the disciples... Back in Matthew 10, when he sent them out in the Galilee, this is Matthew 10, 5-6, he said, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As far as the disciples know, that command should still be in effect here. So how is that command going to be overturned? How is this woman going to be included in Jesus' blessing when she is really outside of the promises of God in every conceivable sense of the idea? Jesus is going to show them right here. He's going to show them how that command that he gave them back in chapter 10 is going to change. Again, he's already preparing them for life after the cross. He's preparing them for the Great Commission. And so he takes them back to that original command in Matthew 10. He reminds them of what he said there so that they can see how he's going to overturn that command here by saying, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I mean, can you see what's going on here? The disciples, in annoyance, asked Jesus, you know, heal this woman's daughter and be done with it. But Jesus sees a teaching opportunity here, and so he says to them, how can I? How can I? Don't you remember what I said before? I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, Jesus intends to heal this woman. Everything that is about to play out here, none of this is going to be truly surprising to Jesus. But before he does this, he wants them to understand the theological impact of what's going on here so that they can understand their mission better once he's raised from the dead. That's why Jesus is bringing all this up. If he were to just heal this woman and be done with it, the disciples would not understand the significance of what he's doing. And so when they raise this request, apparently out of any sort of theological concern, Jesus brings them back to the issue and he says, If you remember, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so he's asking them how this is going to happen. He's bringing this up. He wants to teach them, instruct them. So Jesus, like a good rabbi, he sets the challenge before them. This is how rabbis would train their disciples. They didn't just make declarations. They didn't just spit out propositional truths to their disciples for them to write down and take notes on. They would teach 
by asking questions. They would present problems and then have their disciples figure out the answers to those problems. And this is actually the best kind of learning. A student learns best not when you tell them the answer, but when they discover that answer on their own. So the disciples make this request. They ask Jesus, please heal this woman's daughter. And he shoots back, how can I? How can I help her? And he's saying this because he wants them to solve this dilemma. He's saying, explain the solution to this problem for me. Draw this out for me. Show me how this makes any kind of sense, theologically. And to the average Israelite, it wouldn't have made sense. In their eyes, this woman has no part in the Messiah. She is the least qualified of all people to expect his blessing. And and it doesn't appear that the disciples really have an answer for this dilemma either. After all, Matthew doesn't show us any response on their part. Jesus ignores this woman. They say, help her. He says, how can I? And there's nothing. They're dumbfounded. They don't know. So they say nothing. They're essentially content with Jesus' answer. And so they let the issue go. But not this woman. She's standing at a distance, calling out to Jesus. But I can guarantee you that when she saw Jesus start speaking, she stopped yelling. And she listened to every word that Jesus had to say. And so she's trying to keep her distance. She's wanting to show respect. But then when she hears Jesus say this to his disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She can contain herself no longer. She rushes up to Jesus, kneels at his feet, and says, verse 25, Lord, help me. Again, you can sense the desperation in this woman's request, right? I mean, she's emotionally bursting at the seams. So desperate is she for Jesus' help. And what does Jesus say? Verse 26, and he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. I mean, that has to be devastating, right? I mean, you read this in light of all that's going on here, and it sounds like this is absolutely brutal. Doesn't it? And this is harsh, this is brutal, but don't think that it's Jesus that's being brutal here. Again, keep in mind what Jesus is doing. He's trying to draw out an answer. He's presenting a theological problem, and he's attempting to draw it out of his disciples. So now, this woman hears the answer and she rushes forward and she presents the exact same request to Jesus anyway. Can you see what Jesus is doing here? He's presenting the exact same problem that he presented to his disciples to her and she's asking her to solve it. She comes rushing forward and so Jesus, really playing devil's advocate, speaks to her as really any Israelite at this time would. If I could put it this way, this is a proverbial kind of statement. This is how typical Israelite theology would have viewed this woman. So she rushes forward and she says, oh, and he says to her, okay, you explain it to me. Why should I help you? After all, it's not good to give the children's bread and throw it to dogs, right? And just so you know, I think Jesus already knows that she has the answer to this question. After all, she's already come out and cried out to this Davidic king over and over again, asking him to heal her. She already believes that she has some part in him, in spite of who she is. She should not expect his blessing, and yet she does. 
She's already expressed that. And then not only that, but she rushes forward to Jesus after Jesus told his disciples that he came only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So that statement didn't faze her in the slightest. Jesus says that. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she rushes forward anyway. And when she does this, Jesus already knows that she has the answer. She's rushing forward because although the disciples can't explain why Jesus should help her, She can. She can give an answer to this. So Jesus is not making this statement to wound. He's not making this statement to wound this poor, desperate woman. Instead, he already knows that statement didn't faze her in the slightest. And now he wants her to explain to his disciples why not. He wants her to show them why this didn't stop her. So Jesus is saying to this woman, okay, you're acting like you know the answer to this question, so you explain it for them. And he lobs a softball up there for her to take a swing at. He plays the devil's advocate. He takes the position of the average Israelite, and he says, it's not good to give the children's bread to dogs. Right? And then look at what she says. Verse 26, she says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And I have to tell you, most of the time, 99.9% of the time, your English translations are great. This is one instance where the English translations are really frustrating. I'm kind of mad at how this verse is translated because it doesn't bring out the force of what this woman does right here. You see the word there for yet in that passage, in that statement? It's actually the word gar in the Greek, which is an explanatory conjunction, which is usually translated as either, basically what that means, it's usually translated as either for or because. That word yet. Not as a contrasting, coordinating conjunction like but or yet. In other words, the way this verse should be translated, and just so you know, I'm not on my own here. Uh, I can point to at least one other commentator who would back me up, and, and even the New American Standard points out that this could be translated this way. Um, the way this verse should be translated, she says, Yes, Lord, for even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Do you understand? The way it's typically translated, it sounds like the woman is agreeing with Jesus. And she's not. She's arguing with him. He says it's not right to give the children's bread to dogs. And she says, yes, it is. And explains why. And Mark presents this the exact same way, actually. Uh, There the focus is on the order of blessing. Mark gives a fuller statement from Jesus where Jesus argues that Israel must receive the fullness of their blessing first. And then can the blessing come to the Gentiles. So it's about order All the blessing has to come to Israel first and then the Gentiles. And he says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. And in response, the woman says, and this is the literal translation of that verse, she says, Lord, even the dogs uh, under the table eat the children's crumbs. Again, that's a rebuttal. She's actually arguing with Jesus. And she's saying that what Jesus said isn't true. The dogs don't have to wait. Because even while the children are eating, eating, scraps will fall from the table and the dogs will lick them up immediately. And it's the same thing here. This woman is explaining why it is appropriate to give the children's food to dogs. And this is 
why this word gar in the Greek should be translated as for or because. Really, the only reason why we're tempted to translate that word as yet instead of for is because it makes like this woman makes it look like this woman is beating Jesus in an argument. Jesus says, it's not right to do this. And she says, yes, it is. And as we see in the next verse, Jesus agrees with her. And that makes it look like she beat Jesus in an argument. And you can't beat God in an argument. Well, that's just the thing. She's not arguing with Jesus, per se. She's arguing with traditional Jewish theology. And Jesus is throwing this statement out there because he disagrees with it too, but he's wanting his students to explain why. He wants her to explain to his disciples why this statement is wrong, and so he lobs this softball up there, wanting her to take a swing at it. And what happens? She knocks it clear out of the park. She absolutely nails it. Look at Jesus' answer in verse 28. He says, Oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done to, for you as you desire. And Matthew continues, and her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus commends her. You know, he goes, he goes, oh honey, you answered that one perfectly. Well done. He sets her up, he lobs that softball up there, and she absolutely crushes it out of the park. She knows exactly why he, the son of David, ought to help her, a Canaanite woman. And Jesus agrees, she got it exactly right. It's interesting. Jesus says she has a great faith. And he's absolutely right. This is really just an incredibly remarkable woman. I mean, consider one more time who this woman is. Ethnically, she is outside of the promises of God. She is a sworn enemy of Israel. She is a second-class citizen in her own society. On top of that, considering that she lives in the region of Tyre and Sidon, she knows far less about the Scriptures than, say, the scribes and the Pharisees do, right? She has been, has, has been witness to far fewer miracles than what the disciples have been, right? And yet she can recognize who Jesus is, while the scribes and the Pharisees cannot. And she can answer the dilemma presented here by Jesus, even when his own disciples cannot. I mean, think of how rare it is for Jesus to commend anyone in their answers to his questions. It's not often. Most of the time, Jesus says something and everyone else is kind of standing around shrugging their shoulders going, I don't know what to say about that. And here's this unclean, uneducated pagan. And when Jesus asks her a question, she's right there. She, she of all people, can keep up with Jesus such that when Jesus presents this problem and she answers it, he just has to marvel and go, bravo, well done, you get it. Now think about that when you consider what is taking place in Galilee. I mean, if this woman can understand what is going on with Jesus, then what does that have to say about how blind and stubborn and hard-hearted Israel truly was at this time? Right? She should not be beating guys like Peter to the punch. But she is. And in fact, do you know that while Jesus says she has great faith, he never says this of his own disciples. You know what he likes to call their faith? They? His most faithful of all the disciples in Israel? He says they have little faith. I mean, that's what he said of Peter just a few verses back in chapter 14, right? Peter actually gets out of the boat, starts to walk on water, and when he begins to sink, Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Here Jesus says, Oh, woman, 
Great is your faith. Be it done as you desire. This is really just an incredibly remarkable woman here. She has so little going for her, externally speaking, and yet she understands so much. And the reason is because of her great faith. She is an incredibly soft-hearted woman, an incredibly teachable woman. Again, she is a woman of great faith. And so she gets to participate in the blessing of the kingdom. That's really the moral of this story. This whole account is built around the idea that this woman is really unworthy of the kingdom blessing of God. She's a Gentile. Even more than that, she's a Canaanite, meaning that she is defiled, she is unworthy. And not only that, but she is actually outside of the promises of God. Again, we saw in our passage last week that Israel's defiled too, but at least God promised to remove their defilement in the Old Testament when He gave them this promise of the new covenant. As a Canaanite, this woman had no such promise. She is unrighteous, she is impure, and she is outside of the Old Testament promises that promise to remove that defilement. Really, the only thing close to an Old Testament promise that existed for this woman were God's commands to Israel to destroy her people. That was what was promised to her in the Old Testament. Annihilation. So again, she should really be the last of all people to experience the kingdom blessing of God. She has no business being in fellowship with Him, and she has no reason to think that she can experience the blessing of that fellowship. And yet, by the end of this account, she receives this blessing. That's the main thrust of this story. This Canaanite woman experiences, the bless, experiences blessing at the hands of God's Messiah. The unclean gains access to the blessing of God. And the question is how? How does this work? How did she gain this access? And the answer is by faith. Jesus grants her request in response to her great faith. In fact, in Mark, Jesus actually tells this woman, he says, for this statement, that is because of this woman's answer, which she offered out of such an amazing faith, Jesus says, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. It's in response to her faith that Jesus grants this request. And so kingdom blessing is received through faith. The unclean gain access to God by faith. The unholy, the unrighteous, those who have no business in God's kingdom, they are yet granted entrance into the kingdom by faith. And this should matter to you. Because in your own flesh, you are unclean. You are unworthy of entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Again, everyone saved for Jesus is a sinner who has been defiled by their sin and is unworthy of the presence of God, meaning that absolutely none of us meet God's entrance requirements for the kingdom of heaven. So how are we going to still enter in? And the answer is right here. It's by faith. So what can we take away from this story? Obviously, this story shows us how the unclean, the defiled how they gain access to God's blessing. God's blessing is accessed by faith. That's the main thrust of this story. No one in this room is going to gain access to God on account of their righteousness because you are all unclean. Impurity bubbles up out of your heart. So how will you be accepted by God? It will only be on account of your faith in Jesus. As it says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. This is how the unrighteous enter into heaven. 
Quite simply, they ask. They don't buy their way in. They don't earn their way in. They do what this woman does right here, and they beg their way in. Again, it's by faith. Salvation is by grace through faith. And by the way, this applies to all people, for both the Gentile and the Jew. Keep in mind that this story follows up the conflict over defilement because it answers the problem raised there in Jesus' explanation of defilement. If defilement comes from the heart, then then even Israel is impure. The Mosaic Law, again, we talked about this last week, the Mosaic Law pointed to the sin, the impurity inside of them. So absolutely everyone is unclean. Everyone fails to meet God's standard for righteousness. And so everyone must beg God to enter into the kingdom, not just this Canaanite woman. So that's the main takeaway from this story. And it means that if you want to experience the blessing of fellowship with God, this is how. You come to Him in faith. You deserve to be shut out of God's kingdom. You deserve judgment. You deserve condemnation for your sin. But... If you come to Christ, as this Canaanite woman does right here, confessing your unworthiness and begging for His mercy, then you can receive His blessing. All you must do is come in faith and ask. And Jesus, who by the way, is the one man who is righteous and does have access to the Father, you come and ask Him and He'll let you in. That's the main takeaway from this story. The unclean enter into God's kingdom through faith. You can't get in the kingdom on your own? So how do you get in? How do you when, you when you don't meet the entrance requirements, how do you get in? You say please. That's the main takeaway of the story. The other, I think, is what kind of faith this is that grants this kind of access. Again, Jesus remarks not just on the expression of this woman's faith, but the actual quality of that faith as well. He says that she has great faith. So this woman's faith is really exemplary. Jesus praises her for her faith, meaning that this is a kind of faith that should be modeled. So what do we see in this woman's faith? What characterizes this woman's faith? That's the second takeaway from this passage. And that's why I want to come back and explore in greater detail next week. The elements of a great faith. Again, this is an incredibly remarkable woman right here. The the kind of faith that she exercises here is exemplary. Jesus heaps some pretty significant praise on this woman, meaning that there's a lot that we can learn from her about the kind of faith that God is looking for. So rather than just rush past this passage, I want us to spend one more week here learning from this woman about what it means to have a great faith. That's what we'll explore next week. In the meantime, let's close in prayer. Let's pray.